everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Library Girl and Book Boy podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Today I am chatting with the author of The Midler, Kirsty Applebaum. It's a dystopian adventure full of sibling rivalry and hidden secrets. I loved it and I hope you do too. Right, hello everyone. Today we are very lucky because I am talking to Kirsty Applebaum about her brilliant debut novel, The Middlers, which is published by Nosy Crow and has a fabulous cover by Matt Saunders. Hi there, Kirsty. Hi, Joe. And thank you for talking to me this evening. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> no, my pleasure. So could you start just by telling us what The Middler is all about? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, well, The Middler is uh, a book for nine to 12 year olds, really. Um, and it's set in a near future world. It tells the story of a girl called Maggie, who's 11 years old. And she lives in a very isolated rural town um, called Fenniswick. And um, would you mind if I just read you the prologue here, actually? It's very short. No, that'd be brilliant. Just going to just very briefly read you the prologue. Our eldest, Jed, got born first out of all of us. Our youngest, Trig, he got born four years later. And me, Maggie, I was in between. The middler, worse luck. So we find out on the very first page um, in the prologue that Maggie is a middler, a middle child. And um, we kind of get the impression she's not all that happy about it. Um, and then in chapter one, we join Maggie and her brothers and they go to school. It's the 1st of September and it's the first day back to school after the summer holidays. And we learn a few things about their world. So we learn that the eldest children um, are revered and privileged, really. They even have a little chant about them in the assembly. Um, the chant is... Our eldest are heroes, our eldest are special, our eldest are brave. And so we start to get a little bit of a sense of why Maggie might be unhappy about being a middler, really. Um, another thing we find out about their world is that there's a war going on. They call it the Quiet War. And as in many wartime scenarios, there's a sort of scarcity of resources, really. So there's not much paper. Um, it's hard to get new clothes, there's not much fuel, and they grow all their own food. And then the other thing we find out is that there's a boundary around the town and no one's allowed beyond the boundary and no one's allowed in. And what happens at the beginning of the book is that Maggie meets a dangerous stranger, a wanderer at the boundary, and she makes a decision. She decides that she's going to try and catch this wanderer. Um, and prove to her town that a middler can be just as special and just as brave and just as heroic as a um, eldest. Uh, so she makes that decision and of course everything doesn't quite go to plan and that's the rest of the book. Yes and um, what a brilliant book it is. I have to say I started it, put it down and then I read the rest of it in one sitting to the 
exclusion of my children I had to ignore them for an hour or two while I got right to <laughs> oh, the end nice to hear. and found out <laughs> what happened but it does really seem to have caught the imagination of anyone um, who's read it what do you think it is about the story that makes and the world that makes it so um, accessible and engaging to, to to its readers um yeah I mean I, it's fantastic that people have um, enjoyed it so much as as you said and we've got some you know, I've had some fantastic reviews. It's been wonderful. Um, yeah. So what makes it accessible? I think that um, what I've really tried to do with The Middler is put the reader right into Maggie's head. Um, so they really get that experience of being in her world. Um, and I've done that, in a, I suppose, in a few different ways. Um, it's through the voice. It's really a voice-driven book. I think um, Maggie's voice is quite strong in it and that puts you in tune with her um, straight away. And also um, it's all from Maggie's viewpoint. And I mean more than just the events she witnesses, it's really her viewpoint. She, it, she takes things for granted as any 11 year old does in their own world. And the reader sort of has to take those things for granted along with her, for example, that they have compost toilets instead of bummed toilets. Um, and the references that she makes so that she will only make as, as she's the narrator, but she'll only make references to things she knows, things that are in her world. And I think a good example of that is um, when she meets Una, and she talks about the colour of her hair and she says um, her hair is the exact same yellow as a pound cake mixture right before you bake it. And that reference is from her own world. So it's quite sort of we're very immersed in Maggie's world. We're seeing the whole thing through her eyes in quite an immersive way. Um, when we hear noises, I try not to distance it by saying by having Maggie say I heard a noise. We just hear the noise. So when she's in Mr. Wetherill's kitchen and a cup falls off, we just hear a crash. We don't hear Maggie saying, I heard a crash. So I really wanted to make it very, very close narrative. Um, and I think that helps to really put yourself, put the reader into the world. And the other thing is, um, I think that it's really common for us all at times to feel those things that Maggie feels about not being special and not being important and particularly when we're young and that makes her very relatable so hopefully I think that means the reader's really more prepared to go with Maggie into this world I think hopefully the reader trusts Maggie and likes her I think and that makes you really prepared to go into that world with her. Yeah, I think so. And I think also anybody with siblings, as you say, has at some point or another experienced that kind of jealousy and rivalry that there is at yes, times between yes. all siblings, no matter how bad they get on. Hopefully not just the middlers. I mean, I'm not a middler, actually. I'm, I'm a youngest. And, um, you know, I still experience those things to a greater or lesser degree and certainly did when I was a child. Yes, well, I was going to ask you how your own childhood experiences helped shape the story. So you kind of alluded a little bit there to the fact that you're a youngest. Um, how has that influenced your writing, your, your own upbringing and childhood? Um, yeah, I think it's influenced it immensely, hugely. <laughs> um, not only those feelings, certainly those feelings of, um, you know, maybe not feeling special enough, not feeling important 
enough. Um, I, I mean, I do feel that Maggie is very much based on me, actually, as a character, even down to the fact that she wears her shorts all summer. And I would always wear shorts and I wouldn't, I refuse to wear dresses. The only dress I wore was a, um, was my school dress. And that's the same with Maggie. That's the only dress she wears. The rest of the time she wears shorts and trousers. So she's really very much based on me. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that, um, from my childhood that influenced the Midler is the setting. And this really surprised me actually, because I kind of knew when I was writing it that I'd used a little bit of my childhood setting. But when I um, sort of reread it after some time, um, after writing, maybe six months after writing it and going through the process, I reread it and I was amazed at how much of my childhood setting was in the book. When I was um, five, well, up until I was five, I lived in a very busy London town on the edge of London and you know, on a very busy road. And when I was five, we moved to um, semi-rural Hampshire and it couldn't have been more different. And uh, this world is really Maggie's world. It's so much based on my childhood, 1970 childhood, really. There's meadows and butterfly fields and crickets and um, of course, that summer of 1976, which was, you know, is very much reflected in this book that it was with a summer like that, you get a lot of freedom as a child, but also the heat is very oppressive. So I think you've got that tension between the oppressive heat and the freedom that you've got. And I think that's really come out in this book without me even intending it to. Um, and things like I was in the brownies and we had songs and chants and those songs and chants from the brownies have um, made their way into the Midler, absolutely. The Boundary Song, for example, is based on a brownie song. Okay. Um, and even more than that, in the 70s, I think things were less plentiful. So there wasn't a war going on in semi-rural Hampshire in the 70s, but things were less plentiful. So, um, you know, there wasn't the range of food that's available now and when we would go on brownie camp in the summer we'd get out our brownie camp summer dresses and if we'd grown too tall for them our mothers would sew tears onto the bottom of them which is exactly what happens um, to Lindy at the beginning of the book her mother has sewn an extra tear onto her school dress because she's grown too tall over the summer so it just wasn't as easy to go out and buy a new school dress as it is now um, and my parents grew a lot of vegetables. There was a big self-sufficiency movement in the um, 70s, um, the good life and all that. And my, my, we weren't self-sufficient, but my parents did grow a lot of vegetables and what they didn't grow, we used to go and pick at pick your own farms and then it would be all cooked up into big stews. So very much like Maggie's dad in um, in the Midler. That's exactly what he does. He grows his vegetables and he cooks them up, up into um, big stews. So I would say that the my setting, uh, the, my 1970s semi-rural childhood has really woven itself very much into the Midler in a, in a way that I didn't even realise when I was writing it. Kind of subconsciously just seeped in. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So when you um, set about first thought of the story, how do you then go about um, kind of plotting and planning? Are you a planner? Do you map it all out beforehand or do you kind of 
jump about and add bits as you go? Um, I'm definitely a plotter now. I'm not, I'm not sure I was when I started the Midler, interestingly. When I started the Midler, when, before it was even the Midler, it had, a, in fact, it had a different title. It was called Beautiful Children at one point. And um, I wrote it and I, I was doing a, a master's course at Bath Spa University, uh, the Masters in Writing for Young People, which is a marvelous course. And I got some feedback that um, the setting was lovely and the characters were lovely, um, but that, it kind of lacked plot really. And I, I was I was a bit shocked by this at the time. And I, you know, I, I thought, oh no, I can't plot. And I sort of, you know, sobbed a little bit about that in a fetal position on the sofa. And then I realized that I just needed to learn how to plot actually. <laughs> and so I went on a workshop in London and I, I bought some books on plotting and I read them cover to cover. And I really taught myself how to structure a story. And I think since then, I've become a bit of a plotting geek, actually, if I'm honest. So I do the whole thing with record cards. I write out scenes on record cards and I have my midpoint and my um, opening scene and my inciting incident and my all is lost point. And on cards and I spread them out on the floor. And then I will write from that, but but I don't stick to it rigidly. So if I start writing and the writing moves away from that plot, I change the plot. So um, in that's that's why cards are so great because you can just change, you can just move them around, or you can take some away, or you can add some in, and I find that really works for me. So yes, I do I do plot. I like to plot. It makes slightly anxious if I haven't got a plot in mind and I'm writing. I feel like I'm sort of dropping off a cliff a bit if I don't have a plot in mind. Yeah, you'd like to find a, a plan, even if you don't necessarily stick to that plan. Exactly, There's, it's sort of a safety blanket. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very sensible. Um, so I also wanted just to ask you um, about the cover, which is um, very striking. It has some really beautiful copper um, foiling on the finished um, oh, yeah. copies. How, were, you, were you particularly involved in the cover or is it left to the publishers and their artists to... Um, um, yeah, I certainly um, was asked my opinion on, on the covers at various stages. We went through quite a lot of different covers with the Midler. And um, this one was a little bit of a, a last minute change in a way. Um, I think that we really wanted to get it right and the publisher really wanted to get it right. And I think the direction we'd gone down, we had a very beautiful cover but I think that there was a desire to, at the last minute really, to make it more Midler based, to bring it back to that Midler theme. And I think it had lost its way a little bit. And so this cover by Matt brought it all back to the Midler theme. So we've got the three children on the front and you can see Maggie there in the middle with her billy lamp. And you can see that she's a middle child, the heights of the children are, are different. And you've got the strap line there, which is eldest, youngest, and middler, worse luck. So what it's done really nicely and utterly beautifully is bring it all back to that middler theme. So everything is, um, you know, around Maggie as a middler. And I think it's been done beautifully and it's got 
that wonderful copper foil, as you say, is gorgeous. It is stunning. And actually, I think covers are so important because I know they say you shouldn't judge books by their covers. But I know that whenever I'm sent books to, to read, I always do judge them by their covers. Because that's one of the very first things that a child or a potential reader will see. So if it doesn't grab them and tell them what the story is about... Exactly. And it's there, you know, or in the bookshop, maybe, or, you know, especially when they're on the table. Mm. Um, that's what you see, isn't it? You see that front cover and you, we all, I think we all do, we all go for the covers that we like. And then, then we have a little look at the back and, but that's the, the immediate, your immediate uh, response is to go for the cover, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think so. Now you mentioned the back and there is one little point I wanted to just ask you on the on the now I think this story has a really kind of dystopian feel now I know that the word dystopia wasn't used on um in, on the back of the book is that because you wanted to kind of avoid comparisons with other very different kind of dystopian world set um novels or was, was it not a, a conscious decision um I I think that dystopia I think in since the Hunger Games and Divergent, dystopia, you know, a lot of people might associate dystopia with that. And I wouldn't want to mislead people and think it's like that, because I think it's quite different from those kind of books. Um, I, I absolutely I think, love I think it. your book is more, more real. The, your world is more real than the worlds of those books, which I think makes it yes. actually all the, yes. all the, all the better. Because you can yes. really imagine yourself quite easily being in that situation, can't you? Sorry, what's that? I said, I think because your the setting of your book is so real, I think you could probably imagine yourself more easily inhabiting the world of the Midler. Yes, than... yes. I did really want to make it um, utterly believable. Mm. I think, and the reason I wanted to do that was I, that's one of the things I loved as a child. Um my favourite books were the one that I really, really believed. And I completely believed them. And I think the one that really springs to my mind is um, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar by Roald Dahl. I don't know if you know that. Um, I've read it a I, long time ago. I believed in this. I loved it so much. <laughs> and I believed in it so much. And, I've that, and when I was writing the middle, in fact, when I'm writing anything, I want to make it as believable for my readers as that book was for me when I was a child. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely, that's really one of my aims. So I think that, yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it does have um, a dystopian elements to it for absolutely sure, but I wouldn't want to mislead readers um, to think it's like The Hunger Games. I think it's quite a different sort of book. Mm. Yes. Yes, no, I would agree with that. Thank you. That's interesting. So, so for me, when the middle are ended, I really, I personally would really like another one to find out what happens next. Yes. I don't <laughs> think it's on the cards in the immediate future, but do you think there may possibly at some point be a return to the middle, or is that oh, done for anyone you? Anyone who wants to return to the middle, um, uh, yes, as you say, at the moment, it's uh, it's not uh, something that's happening. Um, but I mean, if I'm honest, I have occasionally in the past considered doing something like, you know, perhaps taking one of the peripheral characters 
and writing their story, something like that. So you never know. I'm never say never. Okay. I'll keep my fingers crossed. I really would like to know what happens next. <laughs> um, that's not, Okay, I'll keep my fingers crossed. So talking of future <laughs> plans, I know that authors are always sworn to secrecy about titles and plots, but do, is there anything that we can look for in the coming year or maybe out next year at all or anything that you're working on that you can give us any hints about at all? Um, yeah, well, as you say, I have to be uh, a little bit uh, careful about what I say, but there are two more books. They are both um, standalone books like The Midler um, and both, again, aimed at the same audience of nine to 12 year olds. Um, and the plan is that one will come out next spring. Mm -hmm. That one, what can I tell you about that without giving anything away? That's also set in a near future world. Um, but I would say it's a nearer future world. It's very much like our world with just a little bit of difference. Um, and then there is a third book hopefully coming out the spring after that. I've only just uh, finished that. So I can't say anything about that because there's way too much scope for that changing dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very sensible. Air on the side of caution. And do, just lastly, then, do you have any um, events coming up over the summer that people can catch you at or anything that you're doing? Where um, can come I've and got get a books? few visits coming up over the summer. Um, they're, they're probably the first one that people could come to is the Bath, I need to get the name right, the Bath Children's Literary Festival um, in October. I'm... The, the MA course I did, was, which was at Bath Spa University, every year there's a panel of ex-students who are now published. So I'm, I'm on the panel this year at the Bath, the Bath Children's Literary Festival on the Masters in Writing for Young People panel. Brilliant. And people can buy tickets just to come to that, can they? Yes, they can, yes. Ah. Excellent. Thank you very much. Right. Well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you very much again for talking to us this evening and um, good luck with your writing and good night. Lovely. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for talking to us. Bye bye. Bye. Doesn't the middler sound fantastic? Make sure you get yourself a copy as soon as you possibly can. Now, you might have heard that Kirsty is actually a graduate of the Bath Spa MA in writing for children. And there is an illustrious list of alumni from that course who I have also had the pleasure of reading their books and interviewing for the podcast. So I'm going to let you know who they are right now so you can brush off and borrow their books from the library or buy them from the bookshop as well. So first we have Julie Pike, who wrote The Last Spellbreather, which was published by OUP. And it's a perfect, dark, magical fantasy where the main character, Rain, is being trained to become the village spellbreather by her mother. But the appearance of a mysterious stranger and an accident with her mother's spellbook signals a chain of events which Rain has to put right if she's to save the other people in her village. I absolutely love this adventure. There's lots of ingenious 
and dark magical devices that I hadn't seen used before and it was a page turner of a read so make sure that you borrow the book and make sure that you listen to Julie's episode of the podcast as well. Another fellow alumni was Fleur Hitchcock whose latest book The Boy Who Flew was published by Nosy Crow and is set back in the Georgian times at the height of the race to get man in the air on wings and it centres around a well-guarded secret regarding a flying machine. There's mystery, murder, blood, haberdashery, a gripping and thrilling read with a couple of quite grisly crime scenes that the older middle grade reader might enjoy. Definitely one for the upper end of Key Stage 2, but absolutely fantastic as well. Well, I hope you enjoy those recommendations. If you'd like to get in touch for any specific ideas for topics or readers that you know, um, do feel free to get in touch with me via the Anchor app or you can find me on my Library Girl and Book Boy Facebook group. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as at BookSuperhero2 and there are also loads more reviews and recommendations on my blog www.librarygirlandbookboy.wordpress.com Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed the recommendations and that you are curious to read more about The Midler. You should be. Um, Make sure that you remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss out on the release of the next episode, which will feature illustrator and author Mikael El Fati talking about his involvement with Empathy Day and his two beautiful books that he has illustrated for author Ali Winter called Peace and Me and Science and Me. Both of them focus on Nobel Prize winners, but not the ones you would expect. They've been really carefully chosen and they are absolutely wonderful books from Lantana Publishing. So remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. See you next time. Bye-bye.